Welcome again. We're going to be spending the next five weeks going at a very high altitude through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is one of these really small little books towards the very end of the Bible. So if you have one, have a Bible, turn to Ephesians, keep it open in front of you. We're going to do all of chapter 1 today. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Just if you, so you understand, the way they wrote letters back then, the person who was writing it says their name first, and the people who are writing it too, you say that next, and then you go into the thing you want to talk about, which usually in these letters in the New Testament, you start out by praising God. So if this sounds like a strange letter to you, this is just how they did it. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason... Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, there is so much in these few verses that we've just read. What a rich passage showing us your great rule over all things and your purposes for this universe. Help us in the time that we have this morning to understand what you're saying so that we might respond with joy, with praise, and with love. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we're beginning today a five-week campaign that at one level is about raising money to improve this building. Uh, first of all, so that we don't kill one of you on that crazy concrete step out there. But 
at a deeper level, it's about generosity more generally. It's about the importance and necessity of giving toward this local church, particularly for those of you who call this church your spiritual home. If you're visiting us today or if you're not sure if we're going to be your spiritual home, we're glad you're with us. We're glad you're here for this time in our church's life. Uh, We'd be glad if you want to give to us, but this is really mainly intended for those for whom this is their home. Now, I will admit, I am fairly uncomfortable with doing all of this. Uh, Out of the hundreds of sermons I've preached at this church, I have only preached on money twice. It would be really nice to me if money would just fall out of the sky. Uh, And so I thought about starting today's sermon in a way that might disarm you and reassure myself about my own insecurity in talking about it. Uh, First, I had this idea that I would start the sermon with a story about how during seminary I was a miserable failure as an insurance salesman. And then I thought, no, that's too hokey and it'll sound like I just feel sorry for myself. And so then I thought, maybe what I'll do is I'll have a satirical introduction made up of corporate gibberish about things like an actionable horizon of a visionary imagination for the outlook of our values in a future together. (laughs) I was going to go on for a couple of paragraphs with complete gobbledygook and see when you figured out that I was joking. But then I thought, well... Instead of trying to soften my and your objections through making fun of the ways that so many churches and so many pastors have become co-opted by the mindset of selling a product, instead of doing that, I thought, well, I'll just cut right to the chase. I'll just dive into Ephesians chapter 1. Because right here in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul is really excited about the local church. He's totally convinced of its absolute and even cosmic significance. And we should be too. But as Paul writes this letter, he's in prison. He's waiting around for his trial before the Roman emperor. It's taking him years and years. He's just kind of wasting away in the midst of bureaucratic purgatory. And the Ephesians have gotten pretty discouraged about it all. This is the great apostle Paul who had taught them so much and done so many spectacular miracles. And now he's just wasting away in prison. They're wondering if what he's said and done, they're wondering if the church of Jesus is really all it's been cracked up to be. In a similar way, there's a lot of people today, maybe some of you, who are wondering if the church of Jesus is really that important. If it's really worth my time and my energy and even my money. Now, the book of Ephesians never directly talks about wealth or buildings. And so it seems like maybe perhaps it's an odd place for us to camp for the next five weeks as I and we hope to encourage you who belong to this church to give money toward it and towards its renovations of this building. But in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul does use wealth and buildings as metaphors to make make a point about something a lot more significant than wealth or buildings themselves. He uses them both as metaphors to talk about the church. And so this is actually a good thing for us because the next five weeks are not really about money and they're not really about a building. They're really about what God is doing through this church, about why it's so glorious, why it's so important, why it's so unique 
The church of Jesus, I mean, this church itself is not going to last forever. Uh, the church of Jesus, though, all over the world will last. Uh, political parties, nation states, schools, all these things that we spend so much time working on and thinking about, they don't last. But the church of Jesus does. If you see what Paul sees, if you hear what he's saying in this letter, if you see how important the church is, then, of course, the way you use your money, the way we use this building, are going to follow in its wake. Later in his letter, he's going to get into all kinds of nitty-gritty practical issues about life in this world. He's going to talk about relationships and family and marriage and work. But before he gets there, he spends the first half of the letter laying out God's great big plan for the universe and why the church is so central to it. And so the beginning of our generosity campaign is the beginning of the letter which is about God's big plan, not just for each of us individually, although he has a plan for each of our lives, but really it's about a plan for all of humanity, but even then that's too small. It's really a plan for the entire universe, for everything that God's ever created. And so Paul opens with praise to God for his glorious plan before he quickly shifts to prayer that God would cause his church to really know and experience the glory of of this plan that he has. And so chapter 1 really follows two basic pieces. There's a praise piece, and then there's a prayer piece. Praise and prayer. So first, let's look at the first part of the chapter. Praise to God for his glorious plan. The first thing I want you to see here is that this is praise to a triune God. That's a theological word that means that God is simultaneously three and one. One and three. The Bible says that God has always existed as one God who relates as three persons, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And so Paul starts out by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. That doesn't mean spiritual like woo-woo, kind of not physical. It means the blessing of the Spirit in the heavenly places. You see all three persons there. We bless him, Paul says, in all three persons because he's blessed us. How has he blessed us? Paul breaks it down, more or less, by walking through how the Father and the Son and the Spirit all work according to this one great big plan. And so the first piece of his praise is about the Father's role in this plan. That's in verses 3 to 6. The Father's work in the past. He's already chosen us for adoption. Throughout the whole chapter, Paul emphasizes that God's chosen to rescue a specific group of people from the misery of sin and death. And that God, particularly God the Father, made this choice to save them even before he created the universe and apart from anything about them. Listen to this. Verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will. Further down, you have more along the same lines, emphasizing that the foundation of God's work is his own will, his own plan. Verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Verse 11. We've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Over and over and over again, Paul is emphasizing that the Father has a plan 
for everything. He's not embarrassed about the fact that God rules over his entire creation, even over the eternal destiny of humans. Paul is not embarrassed by that. He rejoices in it. He's glad about it. And we should be too. But to many people, it seems unfair. I don't really have time today to go into this whole topic of predestination, but as always, I'd be glad to talk to you after the service or over coffee. But in a sense, it is totally unfair. Because what the Bible says would be fair would be for God to save nobody. Because we as humans have freely rebelled against him and so justly deserve his judgment. Justice, in a sense, fairness, in a sense, would be God saying, fine, go away, here's judgment. That's what would be fair. But in his great and mighty mercy, God has chosen to save some people, even though no people deserve it. And these people cannot and will not be able to pay him back for it. I don't know if you noticed this, but in this entire chapter, the only things that we do, the only actions, the only verbs where we're the subject in the whole chapter are that you hear the message and you believe in Jesus. That's it. This chapter is all about what God does. It's all about what God does. God is the one who accomplishes our salvation and our blessing. He does it from eternity past, even before he created anything. And he does it all the way through the present and into eternity future, when the universe will be recreated as a new creation. And this is what Paul is so joyful about. He's not apologizing for it. He's not trying to skirt around the issue. He says, wow, we should be praising God because of this. Because in God's rule over all things... Paul says that God has lavished his blessing upon us. He's lavished the abundant riches of his grace, his undeserved gift of never-ending life and blessing with him and before him and in him. And so Paul is repeatedly saying that the ultimate point of this lavish generosity toward the church is to move us to praise him to recognize him for who he is. Another way of saying this is that the point of all of this is to move us to enjoy him, to be happy about who he is and what he's done. Paul says that this is all, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verses 12 and 14 say the same thing. They both say that it's all about the praise of his glory. You see, God is not stingy, with his grace. He's not dribbling it out a little bit here and a little bit there, maybe if you're really well behaved. Paul says over and over that God is abundantly generous toward his people. He's generous toward his church. And that this generosity with his infinite and eternal resources motivates our generosity with our own limited and temporary resources. But what's the nature of his generosity? It's one thing to say he's really generous. But what's the content of that? What has he done that's so generous? What has he given us? Paul moves on in verse 6 from the plan of the Father in the past now to the accomplishment of the Son in the present. You see that in verses 6 to 10. From the plan of the Father now to the accomplishment of the Son. The Father, Paul says, has given us Jesus. 
You see that? He says he has blessed us with his grace. He's blessed us in the beloved, in the son. Over and over in the chapter, he does it so many times you almost don't even notice. Over and over in the chapter, Paul talks about how we are favored and chosen and adopted in Jesus. So many times in this chapter, he says, in him, in him, in him, in him. We receive all these blessings in Jesus, who's always been the Father's beloved Son. And so it's in being united to Jesus that we can enjoy all the blessings of his accomplishments for us. But what has he accomplished? What are these riches of the Father's grace in Jesus? Paul says there that we have redemption through Jesus' blood. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We're going to talk about this a lot more next week when we get to chapter 2. But the heart of the good news of Jesus is that he has come to die in our behalf on the cross, suffering the hellish judgment that we deserve. And he did all this so that we could be forgiven before a holy God for all the things that we've done wrong, all the things we've ruined, all the ways that we've failed. In our sin, we're slaves to misery and death. And so the Bible says that we need redemption. That's a word that means being bought out of the slave market. Famous example of this was Julius Caesar got taken captive by pirates. Somebody had to pay a ransom for him to stop being a slave. This is what the Bible calls redemption. Jesus' blood, in a sense, is the ransom price necessary to redeem us out of slavery. And he did all this so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could enjoy the eternal blessing that he deserves. He takes the judgment we deserve, we get the blessing that he deserves. And so we have God's forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption now, even though we still wait for the future full redemption of our bodies and of the entire universe. That's God's ultimate plan, which is still focused and centered on Jesus. Look at verse 10. Paul says that this is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. And so the church, as it exists now, is something like an outpost. Or another way to think of it, it's like a foretaste of this coming renewal of all things. When all kinds of people and angels and creatures are going to be united under the rule of King Jesus forever. Jesus' church, even right now, Jesus' church is God's adopted family of forgiven and ransomed sinners. They show, we show, right now, by our love for one another, that we're being united under King Jesus, just like the entire creation one day will be. And so that brings you to verse 11, where we have the Spirit's work in the future. The Father has planned it, the Son has accomplished it, and the Spirit, Paul says, is going to take us all the way there into this rich, lavish inheritance of a new creation. And so in Jesus, we're now adopted into the Father's family. Some of you might have noticed that Paul says we're adopted as sons. It's not because Paul is a misogynist and he's ignoring women or ignoring the adoption of girls as daughters. He's making a very significant point because in the ancient world, only the sons inherited everything. And so what Paul is saying is that all of you are inheriting everything, male and female. 
We're adopted into the Father's family. We're heirs with and beside Jesus. And the presence of God's Spirit among us is his assurance that he won't give up on his eternal plan to give us glorious new bodies, to give us a spectacular new universe, all of it to be cleansed of suffering and death and sin. And so Paul says that in Jesus, verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance. And in verse 14, he says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of that inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So that's the glorious plan of the triune God, why Paul starts out his letter by praising him. The Father has eternally planned to adopt you as his heir. He's done it in and through the work of his beloved Son, and his Holy Spirit is going to get you all the way there into your eternal inheritance. He's not going to give up on you. Now imagine, we've been talking a lot about adoption and inheritance. If you found out, you go home from church today, and there's a letter with a nice gilded envelope waiting on your doorstep. You find out in that letter that you are actually the heir of somebody who's fabulously wealthy, and you're going to inherit everything in six months. If you found out you were going to be fabulously wealthy in six months, wouldn't you live very differently until then? Wouldn't that change the way you approach your problems now, the things you get worried about, the things you get stressed out about? Paul says, you have this inheritance. It's coming a lot sooner than you think it is. It's something fabulously rich. God's lavish generosity in this inheritance, and it's already yours. You have to wait a little bit longer. The Spirit will make sure you get it. And so now at verse 15, he prays that the Ephesians would live appropriately in light of this plan, in light of the fact that they have this inheritance coming. Paul says, I'm praying for you that you'll respond in the right way to this wonderful plan that God has for you. That starts in verse 15. It goes to the end of the chapter. Paul wants the Ephesians, he wants us to really grasp what God has done, what God is going to do for them. He says, I'm praying for you all the time that the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him so that you might have the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you might know, he goes on, all this language about I want you to understand something. But he's not talking about bare intellectual propositional knowledge about something like the doctrine of God. I want you to get all the facts right so you can pass your theology exam. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I want you to know God as the one who works for us. I want you to know God in a way that's personal and transformative, not just intellectual. And so Paul says, I'm praying... Verse 18, that you might know the hope to which he's called you. He says, I'm praying that you would be confident in the fact that this inheritance is yours, that you wouldn't doubt it, that you would look forward to this future renewal of the universe. And then Paul describes this hope in terms of the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul can't help himself using this metaphor of money all over the place to talk about God's grace, God's lavish generosity. The world's greatest wealth is nothing compared to the rich splendor and security of what God has written into his will for everyone who trusts in Jesus. This never-ending world of joy and peace as we spend forever and ever going deeper and deeper into knowing God and we do it in friendship with countless people from all over the world and all through history. But then Paul turns up the dial 
to 11, so to speak. He now speaks of this glorious inheritance in terms of God's power. God's power. Uh, He's running out of words and synonyms to use for power and might. He just throws them all in for the fun of it, even though your English teacher tells you not to do that. And so his point is that this isn't wishful thinking. We're talking about some future world. It's going to be great. You know, Karl Marx heard about this stuff, and he said, this is stupid. They're just trying to get people to forget about all their problems. Uh, This isn't pie in the sky. It's not some utopian fantasy. This is not the naive projections of a bunch of losers onto an invisible Santa Claus. Paul's saying, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And so he's piling up all these words about God's strength because he's saying, I want you to know what this power is. This power that's now yours is the same power that God has already displayed at the greatest and the most shocking event in human history. He says the great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You see, at the center of Christianity is the proclamation and the announcement that God has invaded the world in Jesus. Not some ethereal world way out there that has nothing to do with this world, but that he's invaded this world. That in this world, in the history of this world, God has come into it and he's conquered our greatest enemy, the grave. Muhammad didn't come and claim to do this. Buddha didn't come and claim to do this. Moses didn't come and claim to do this. Jesus did. Jesus says, I've come to conquer death. Jesus did not have a near-death experience. His disciples were not hallucinating. They were not making it up. God really did take on human nature. And in that human nature, he trampled on our worst horrors with all of his spectacular power. And so Paul says that same divine power is yours. God has worked mightily for and among the church, all those who put their hope in Christ. Now, we do continue to suffer. Our lives are filled with a great deal of pain and sin. But one day, God will powerfully raise us from the dead and he'll free us from every sin and every suffering. But this power that Paul is talking about is not just something for the future. You know, just keep waiting, just keep hoping. Uh, It'll happen sometime. But Paul's saying that God has already turned this death-conquering power toward us right now in love and mercy. Because in Christ, he's forgiven us. In Christ, he's reconciled us to himself. In Christ, he's ransomed us from the slavery of sin. He's adopted us into his family. He's given us new hearts so that we can hear him and understand him and respond to him. In other words... God has already dealt with your deepest problem. Something that you could do absolutely nothing about. This is what makes the church so unique, so important, so central to God's glorious plan for the universe. Because we are the forgiven family of the God of the resurrection. Jesus did not just rise from the dead and then kind of fade away somehow, like when Darth Vader kills Obi-Wan Kenobi and he just kind of like disappears and shows up as a ghost. He just didn't just rise from the dead and then kind of fade off so that people would have visions of him. 
He says in verse 20 that the necessary next step from the resurrection was his physical ascension going up, his going up into the thrones of heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. Paul says the Father has seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places. He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he's put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This means that in the same way that Jesus wielded the mighty power of the Father to rise from the dead, to conquer death itself, so also Jesus continues to wield that mighty power to rule over the entire universe. I heard somebody say one time that the entire universe is being ruled by a man with a belly button. He is in a human body, ruling over all things. The Father has set Jesus far above every spiritual and human and cultural and political power. He moves them wherever and however he pleases according to his own glorious plan to reveal the lavish riches of his grace toward the church. And you notice there that Paul said that it's as the ruler of the cosmos that Jesus is the head of the church. It's as the ruler of the everything, the whole universe, that Jesus is the head of the church. Being ruler of the church is not some sorry consolation prize. It says, well, Jesus wanted you to just kind of be in charge of this thing that's not that impressive and no one really cares about. It says, you're in charge of everything, and because you're in charge of everything, you're in charge of the church too. It means that Jesus rules over everything, everything, all the planets, all these galaxies that are out there that we'll never see. Jesus rules over all of it for the sake of the church. He rules over all of it for our good. Because Paul says Jesus' church is really his body. In his mighty rule, he reigns over everything, but in a special way, he rules over and on behalf of his own body. He loves his church. And so that's why Paul says that he's the fullness, the church is the fullness of him who fills everything in everything. And so what that means is that all of your suffering, all of your weakness, all of your failure, even your sin, Jesus is ruling over it. Jesus is ruling through it. He's working all of it for the blessing of his beloved people, his body, the church. And so if you trust in Jesus, that means you belong to the church. And so that means that these blessings of God's eternal plan are yours too. And so Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is also my prayer for you. That you might know God's glorious plan and work in Jesus. The way that his resurrection has now spilled over into his reign over all things. Not just earthly things like your job and your family and your money. Although he does rule over those things. But also his rule over this vast spiritual realm of the heavenly places and the demonic powers. There's a lot of people getting into occult spiritual things. They don't know what they're messing around with. That stuff is real. It's incredibly powerful and dangerous. Paul says Jesus is in charge of all of it. He's ruling over all of it. The ruler of all things is our generous Father's gift to the church. And so as we begin the generosity initiative, remember what the, God, what the glory of God's plan means for you and for us. Your money and your job and your day-to-day nitty-gritty life, those things should be about something far more significant than bills and gas tanks and schedules 
it means that this building can and should be about something far more significant than chairs and windows and picnic tables. Because the church, this church, as one local outpost of the church, the church is an essential part of God's glorious plan for the entire universe. Uh, the things that we can see, all the things we can't see. It's a central part of God's plan for the very consummation of the history of this planet. And so I'm praying that the eyes of your heart and the eyes of my heart might be enlightened to see the glory of God's plan in Jesus in and through the church, a plan that he made in eternity past, a plan that we're already beginning to enjoy in the present, but a plan that will also be consummated, finished, in an eternal future of Jesus ruling over us forever. I'll be praying that for you. Let's pray it for each other. Lord, help us to see the beauty and the glory of this grand plan that you have for the universe, not just the physical universe, but even this entire realm of angels and demons that we can't even see. Help us to see the central role of your church in it, in all of its weakness and failure, uh, in all of its apparent futility, in all the ways that it's laughable to the world. Jesus, you love the church. You love this church. Help us to see the glory of your plan for us. Help us to live in light of it so that we might show how good this plan is. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.